Welcome everyone to the Daredevil Podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is a guy who spent 14 hours straight watching these 13 episodes of Daredevil. Then, how did he celebrate? He went down to the Lucky Strikes bowling alley in Hell's Kitchen, New York City, and bowled till dawn. It's the one, it's the only, it's Pete. Hello, Pete. I want a lawyer. Episode 103 of Daredevil, Rabbit in a Snowstorm, is brought to us by... Whitestone lanes. When you're looking just to throw a couple balls before bludgeoning a guy to death, roll on down. Order in the court! One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. And Pete, though it might be about getting the devil his due, you know what? Sometimes the rent is due. Just want to mention to our loyal and new fans alike that if you'd like to help out the podcast with our bandwidth and storage costs, you can head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Fantastic Geek. And uh, even if you give a little, it goes a long way. Uh, it's no no need for envelopes stuffed with $100 bills that we'll keep in, uh, keep in our Cutman kit. It only goes to keep the podcast afloat. Uh, there might need to be, uh, you know, a little fund for Pete to address all those bed sores and, uh, you know, get help taking all the boxes of Depends. Well, I guess they're all used, but getting all those dirty bags out after his uh, mammoth binge watch. I, of course, spoiler-free, virgin eyes, freshly watched this episode 103, and I think, Pete, we should get into it. Yes, our tease begins at the aforementioned Whitestone Lanes. Uh, a bowling ball out of the return there. A man comes up to grab a pair of size 10s. And he is told by the woman at the desk that they are closed. Um, but he notices that there is another man still playing, Mr. Prohaska. He's told, however, bowls whenever he wants to. He worked it out with the owner. Asked if uh, he may join him. Um, she said, you want to ask? Knock yourself out. To which our slighter man goes over and uh, asks if he could throw a couple balls around. A couple men, guards presumably, standing around, um, give him the once over. He's told it's a private game and then uh, tells his buddies there to get this moron out of my face. The slighter man then takes both of those other men out, pulls a gun on Prohaska. Whoa, you got a bad attitude, friend. And then we get a flashback. It's really a compelling, compelling opening to this episode and one that, you know, given the given that this series, uh, you know, as a Netflix offering, doesn't need to necessarily follow the rules of get them hooked at the top of the hour to keep them so they watch the they watch the ads in between the different acts. Um, it still is a good storyteller device to get you hooked in with characters that you have not seen before in a situation that is somewhat without context, and then to cut back to thirty six hours ago, it's just kind of this moment of. 
added curiosity. What is going on? What has brought us here? Um, the the as of yet unnamed redheaded man uh, seemed so congenial, as you said, kind of more of a slight build. So not kind of walking in there clearly assassin material or you know tough stuff material. And uh, with that, Pete, we continue in the future of the episode, going to the past chronologically. Yes, our uh, friend from the docks, Turk Barrett opens a case of handguns. He sniffs, explains how he loves that smell of metal and oil. Fresh, never been fired. Take a whiff. Our slider man is then glimpsed there, uh, who explains he likes a good revolver better, um, that uh, it's less likely to jam. And uh, we hear from uh, Turk Barrett that uh, these top of the line, they're not going to jam or my name ain't Turk Barrett. Flashback to the present, Matt, and what happens? Well, on the heels of Turk Barrett's famous no jamming guarantee, the gun jams. And uh, with that, just a show that already in two episodes has established <laughs> its ability to have just jarring fights um we lead into another another fight here but i think they realized you know what to just have guys get knocked around uh we've already seen a lot of that some of these people are binge watching and they're probably what five minutes or less since that that epic uh you know five minute uncut shot at the end of uh the previous episode so let's take it up a notch. Yep. 102 indeed um, there's face hitting, there's heads getting hit to the bowling ball return machine. Uh, Mr. Prohaska's hand and glove get caught in said machine. And then in probably the most visceral bit of violence thus far in the series, he gets his arm broken. And Pete, I know from watching the ER back in the day, uh, when the bone sticks out of the skin, that's called a compound fracture. And son, we get a compound fracture here. Not only a compound fracture using the ball return to pry it out, but then it is twisted before um, our unnamed assailant to this point just absolutely buries the ball on his face, spurting blood all over. And the girl at the desk is on the phone and we overhear the police telling this young miss to stay on the line and she runs um but i love how they play with the expectations here the expectation in the first part of this scene was this guy's gonna get his face handed to him our our unnamed character to this point then it was okay he turned the tables my expectations have been thrown out the window he's going to beat them up and get what he wants. Then take away the gun. That doesn't work. Brutal fight. Uh, then he prevails in the brutal fight, kills the other man, Mr. Brohaska, presumably at this point. And uh, the cops are coming. And what does he do? He hides that jammed gun and waits. And then as the cops come in, tells them he wants a lawyer, really sets up this episode finally. It absolutely does. And that's the first inkling that we have that this character is is a pro um, for him to just so quickly find a place uh, to hide the gun. Um, Under a uh, pinball machine. Indeed. He's a pinball wizard. And the fact that there's a gun there, that's the twist. Um, him uh, kneeling and putting his arms behind his head in another scene of um, 
shall we say, efficient camera work because the camera stays on him. Interesting sound design because we hear the cops giving their orders. There he is. Put your arms up, etc. No need to be as pedestrian as show cop enter, show a reaction shot, show cop drawing gun, show... It's just, let's just tell it, you know, let's tell it from this guy's point of view. Um, And with that, he wants a lawyer. Boom, title card. Hey, Pete, don't we know a lawyer in this show? I think we do. Act one begins with Matt Murdock out in front of a church um, in a welcome return, I think, to this idea of, you know, him with the penance and the reconciliation and, and the really the angst of squaring what he does by day and by night. The priest immediately recognizes him as Jack Murdoch's kid, but this time not separated by the confessional. The priest has to point out that he recognizes him from before, but that it's all right, that the seal of confession is in place, that anything that is said in penance uh, between them it cannot be used, that he could have killed 10 people, Matt, and uh, still not been able to uh, give him a hard time about it. Now, Pete, perhaps you could illuminate uh, for me some of the particulars of the, the Catholic faith there. I suspect that if you went in there and said, I've just killed 10 people, uh, that might be uh, an exception to the seal of confession. But, but I'll take the priest at, uh, at kind of hyperbole there. Well, I'll I'll trade that with a story. My maternal grandfather, when he made his first reconciliation in the 1920s, he told the priest he had killed a man at seven. He's seven years old making this reconciliation. (laughs) So I think the priest knew based on the voice that this didn't happen. Um you know, I wouldn't truly be able to tell you whether or not if it's a if it's a, a grave sin that uh, I would imagine much like a, a psychologist, if it's something that someone indicates harm towards themselves or someone else, that they're bound by some kind of code um, in terms of the danger of that. But I can't imagine that people haven't gone through and, you know, soldiers, oh, I killed a man on a battlefield, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. You know, where, where do we draw the line? Is, is it a sin? You, you broke a commandment. Uh, was it done under a just war, a just cause? I'm pretty sure it was. Regardless, the notion of the, the priest taking a bit of levity here uh, connects nicely with the next bit of dialogue, which is that he wants to get coffee with Matt. And though Matt declines, it, I think it speaks to, to a genuine nature of the priest. Um, I, I don't know how much we're going to see of this character in the, uh, the remaining 10 episodes Although this does I can hint. tell you, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Much appreciated. Um, certainly, the, I think this suggests at at more than just you know a, a mouthpiece in the pilot for for Matt to cry and you know lead to flashbacks and that sort of thing. Um, but that there, there's a there's a a battle weariness to the priest that I really dig in this scene. The fact that they're outside, beautiful day, fresh air. Um, still outside the church, still, you know, under the auspices of the Lord, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just kind of like the informality of it and the priest who, who must, you know, uh, must have negative things confessed to him all the time, hence the nature of confession. 
really recognizing in this guy uh, that that Matt Murdock needs help on some level, spiritual help, emotional help, something that the priest knows he can't push too much on. And um, I mean, given given the Catholic overtones of the character, historically, the character in the comics, my bet would be we see more of this guy as, uh, I don't know, things get worse for Daredevil. In context, Matt, this might be the lightest scene in the course of the episode. <laughs> Certainly true, Pete, particularly in the next scene, we cut to Ben Urich. Uh, he's uh, meeting a mystery man off to the side. It's, it's steeped without the show selling it at all. It's steeped in this idea that this mystery man is an old time crook. Uh, as the dialogue unfolds, he's looking to head to Florida to kind of cash out of the the nefarious business going on in New York. And uh, definitely a compelling scene just to kind of understand this uh, enterprising reporter character of Ben Urich. Matt, uh, old listeners will know, uh, new listeners will not, that I was a full-time journalist and I love our introduction at long last to the character of uh, Ben Urich here and instantly what's brought to the table the idea of a history a context with sources uh, as a crime reporter everything here and we have this crook really wistfully looking at the city and talking about you know people's memories uh, these days ain't so good you know used to come into the city with my boys we were kings of the castle Okay, and and Ben brings up the idea of uh, kings don't have bodies in a trunk. Tell that to Macbeth, Matt. <laughs> uh, the, the first indication, at least uh, within the writing, that the series aspires to be more than you know, bang bang excitement. Um, there's also the line in the scene uh, used to be. I don't even have it written down. It's off memory here. So watch, watch my wonderful memory here. Uh, you know, used to be when you put a hit out on man, you sent flowers to his wife. Now you just take her out too. You know, very much as this. There's the old New York with the old way of doing things, and now it's just it's just different. But there are rules that at least the two of them are still operating. Uh, under while you know the subject here is what happened to Rigoletto he retired um, in pieces okay the rules here despite bringing up the Russians and and what's going on uh, you know the time-honored uh, journalistic tradition is you know you you ask some questions and you know maybe he's got something to say here and that's how it goes. Nothing is volunteered, Matt. He doesn't come to you. We don't. We don't want any snitches. Mm. Um, you know, but we get quite a bit in terms of the context. The Russians have been uh, obviously beleaguered. We know, of course, by the masked man. Someone's hitting them hard, mostly at the docks. Uh, records have been altered. Everything like that. There is what you talk about. The the idea that if you killed a man you uh you know at least showed his widow kindness but this is a different breed of crook in a different generation and uh having gone away for his 10 years as this unnamed mobster says uh ben and his paper was the only one that didn't drag that character's children through that and he's grateful for it and what's the uh 
what's the what's the carrot after the fact? Uh, you know, obviously it's these periodic meetings that that the man has had with Uric, but his recommendation on this particular situation, despite the fact that Uric can see that there's a pattern out there, the recommendation take a pass on the mystery man. Yep. He's not overselling it. He's not saying more than he wants to. Um, but he's saying to this. I don't even know how much he trusts Eric, but he's saying to this reporter that he respects, steer clear of this one. It's not going to be good. Right. We also get, if you're keeping score, we get our fourth S word of the series. There's more in this episode. <laughs> With that, we cut to the uh, Nelson and Murdoch world headquarters that... Uh, Three rooms, and that might even be generous. Uh, one room with three subdivisions. Uh, headquarters there with the two lawyers and Karen. They're all jumpy. Karen, most of all. Pete, why, of course, is she the most jumpy of all? Well, she has received a letter, and she has the envelope here. And as a groggy, foggy walks in, um, you know, full of resolutions like uh, skipping the eel with the whole night out thing. So this is obviously close in time after episode 102 cut man. She hides the letter in her bag and we will come back to that. And with that, there's a rap, rap, rapping on the door. No, it's not the Raven. Heck, it's not even Mockingbird. It's uh, the, who I'm taking the calling, Mr. Glasses. Uh, he's coming in. and It really is kind of a shocking moment because clearly we've seen him as the proxy for Mr. F. Um, and we know he's up to no good. And we know that he is directly pulling strings for, you know, the the badness the, uh, going on in, in this story. But to see him, you know, darkening the doorstep of this meager uh, legal practice here, I certainly was not expecting that. No, and I think it's important to understand that Matt Murdock has joined them in this scene. At this point, there was, uh, they noticed his eye. Um, which has been a recurrent motif throughout these first three episodes of injuries to eyes. And uh, we'll examine that a little bit more towards the end of this episode. We'll make a point of it, Matt. So but, we'll, we'll get a lot closer to some of those eye injuries. We'll look closely. Oh, I, I think we'll more. Is, than that, is that your point? Yeah. Um, so this uh, man in the suits, uh, come around several times of the first time we've seen him interact with our heroes and he explains that he scouts the local legal talent to put them on retainer and foggy is all in uh he represents confederated global investments um and matt has the simple questions when you know foggy's ready to sell out why us and uh, our gentleman in the suit here with the glasses explains that uh, his employer does extensive business in Hell's Kitchen. And who better than local boys who graduated from Columbia Law, cum laude and summa cum laude, no less, um, to represent them. And though uh, another firm in Manhattan had really kind of uh, angled in to get uh, Murdoch and Nelson, they wound up back home. And this impresses Murdoch that this gentleman has done his homework. What I like is when there's the offer of the, the quote unquote fair compensation, this retainer that uh, Mr. Glasses is uh, looking to give uh, the firm. I love that in, in a continuation of small details, 
uh, here. What is the amount of fair compensation? It is unstated and unseen. I just like that because of the classiness of it, the gentlemanly, let me write a number and send it across the table. Side note, it also means 5, 10, 30, 50 years from now when somebody sees it, they're not going to laugh at what the number is. But I don't even think that was a writing consideration. I think it's just this flourish of we're going to give you a number, but we're not going to discuss it because we're all civilized gentlemen here. The irony being, you know, two of them are not. And there is such a mix of pleasantry and uh, tension in the proceedings here. You know, these two lawyers are praised by Mr. Glasses as being ethical, yet what do we come back to? It's, um, you know, the menace that comes across with knowing everything about Karen and her case and, you know, do all your, your clients wind up working for you or just the pretty ones? Certainly something something to be said uh, to her. It, there's also the, uh, the knowledge that he shares quickly that she was, uh, you know, she was a murder suspect, which leads to fencing between, you know, at least verbal fencing uh, between uh, Mr. Glasses and Matt and whatnot. And... I mean, if there's one word that this scene is about, it's about power. And it's about the notion that, you know, Nelson and Murdoch, lawyers, attorneys at law, um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a group, they kind of have this notion of, hey, we're on our own. And it's, you know, somebody from the neighborhood coming to knock on the door to say, no, there are things going on here. And why don't you, why don't you play ball? But Toby Leonard Moore just brings such a coolness as our glasses wearing, um, you know, guy in this scene here representing these firms. And we know he's representing a larger evil out there that, you know, you, you, you go along with it, you know, Matt being the conscience of this show, foggy being its sense of humor and that they go back and forth and they really spar over everything and it comes down to that if they accept the retainer they have their first client uh they have 30 minutes to get to precinct 15 and everything you're going to need is in this file by the way pete on the topic of actor toby leonard moore uh sent him a quick tweet today complimenting uh, his uh his uh, performance and the character here and he responded pretty darn quickly he said thanks mate he's so much fun to play so certainly a, a thumbs up there to the actor for being congenial on twitter and uh for really kind of uh relishing this uh this as of yet unnamed character i know you know in my in my spoiler free world there is some some suggestion, some little whispers I've heard about what the character's name could be. But uh, I love that even in this scene, he's not willing to name himself to the other characters. And I love just kind of the, the dramatic conceit that nobody that he's dealt with has said his name. Because, of course, right. to say the names of the people in this... Uh, you know, in this organization or in this, uh, you know, group of organizations, secrecy is the secrecy is the word of the day. It's not even something we play with because once he leaves, <clears throat> Matt even says he wouldn't even give us his name. So he follows him outside and, you know, another recurring motif in the course of this episode quickly becomes his ticking watch. Matt with his senses uh, 
things go slow motion out there and he hears senses, I think would be the, the better way of doing it, that uh, this character gets into one of three black escalades um, and uh, is on the phone with a man uh, who has um, is, is he no he's across from him I'm sorry uh, who has a very distinct uh, ring we can assume this is the unnamed Vincent D'Onofrio character at this point and he assures that it's been taken care of sir all of which Murdoch hears and like that the Escalades pull away and then we go back to the internal Matt in that Matt Murdoch clutches his side and the wound from the previous episode is oozing into his shirt. It, it really is. It's a wonderful scene, this exterior one. Um, it's just a great use of that kind of blur and focus effect where, you know, like we're all able to do on our smartphones, you have the, the you know, you have the the clear portion where you just want to be seen. Here, it is so simple to just have uh, Mr. Glasses in focus 40 feet away, clear to us, along with the sound design of we can hear him, Matt can hear him, um, that, that the conversation is overheard. No computer-generated whooshing and, you know, sonar effects. It's just there he is, here's the sound, that's the focus of the visual because that's the focus of the sound, and... It's just so understated and and perfectly presented. We pick up with Foggy uh, down to see their first client, and uh, it is the unnamed assailant from the first scene. <laughs> A lot of find- unnamed. I'm glad we- they're about to to to, to name the unnamed yeah, red-haired yeah. assailant. My goodness, his name is Mister Healy, and. Uh, we come to find out here in his own words, just like happened uh, when we saw it, that all he wanted to do was throw a couple balls. He asked the lady, oh, yeah, but they said you crushed his skull. <laughs> um, and the idea of self-defense is, of course, floated. Uh, were you threatened verbally? Were you threatened physically? Matt, which one sounds better? <laughs> Indeed, and I mean it's 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 this moment where you kind of got the inkling when he was arrested that he he knew what the deal was. But here, the fact that he has the legalese, the fact that he's he's um, thinking as fast as his attorney is in terms of the legal presentation of this, and I'm sure you know there's there are, are ethical constraints where a lawyer, at least a, a good lawyer, an honest lawyer. <laughs> if there is such a thing, um, is going to tell you, well, you know, don't lie. Say it was self-defense or say it was this, you know, don't, don't, don't say both if it's not true. Well, Healy figures out that to say both is better. Um, and a little bit of a reverse here. We've seen thus far when it comes to money, Foggy is, is willing to, to move on financial matters, which, I mean, on the one hand, we say, oh, you know, you must fight for truth and justice. Not for nothing. They have an office to pay for a practice to put together. Money is not insignificant here. But he's ready to just jet on this guy and give up on him. But then it's Matt who enters and declares that they're ready to take the case for reasons that are not entirely clear yet. And that's what I truly appreciated about this scene. You know, though Healy is is using precise legal 
vocabulary to the point that it is evident that this is not his first rodeo. Um, it would be easy to drop this and against cast and type foggy doesn't want it. And Matt comes in and he is determined to take the case, but because he knows it's going to net him more information about this shadowy network. And I would even argue that the fact that, that the show withholds that last bit of information that he's there to get more information about the network, the fact that they withhold that cut to Ben, which we'll discuss in a minute and kind of the, 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 you know, uh, an insurance related scene because there's nothing more scintillating than talking about the difficulties of insurance and also writing fluff paper, you know, fluff articles for the paper. Um, but sarcasm aside, I suspect that they took this whole scene with Healy and split it in two a to just kind of give story momentum to the scene that we're about to hear with Ben. But since the real nugget is why Matt wants to take the case, um, that's a nugget worth holding off with, with, uh, this Ben scene in between. Definitely. Uh, so when we see Ben at the New York bulletin here, he is on the phone arguing with an insurance company about policy and extension, et cetera, et cetera. There is the feminine pronoun thrown around. So we can assume at this point, yet it's still not been stated definitively that it is his wife. Um, but he is interrupted by a colleague who listens to the end of the call and then they exchange some war stories. Come to find the other character's name is Ellison. Um, and next week's spread, which they're there to talk about, is an organized crime thing. All of Hell's Kitchen. There's a new player on the scene and no one knows what he wants. Um, but he is reminded, Ben is, that this is the city desk. Even though no one's on it yet, it's not sexy. There's no news value. Um, to which point Ben points out that we're a newspaper, not a girly mag. But Matt, nobody calls them that anymore. <laughs> this is such a scene of disappointment. And I don't mean disappointing presentation. I don't mean disappointing acting. I think the, the intention of the scene is to just add another layer of, of sadness to the story, if you will. This guy who is distracted clearly by something serious and medical involving someone else. Um, the notion that Ellison, as an editor, is not going, is not, oh my goodness, he's not Jonah J. J. Jonah Jameson saying outlandish, unreasonable things. Um, that he's just saying, all right, look, that sounds like a great story. Here's what we need. There's the line there, you know, people younger than us are at home in their underwear making more than us as they write for blogs. Uh, if only that was true for the podcasting game, kids. Um, I'm at least wearing pants, for goodness sake. Um, I am completely naked, um, except wow. for the pile of money that I'm sitting on. <laughs> uh, well, there goes shots of people helping out at patreon.com slash fantastic um, Oh, I didn't say it was a big pile. <laughs> I also didn't say it was American currency. So there, there you go. You know, spoiler, spoiler P got himself some fetishes, Matt. <laughs> But it's just, it's kind of this, it, it, it's a scene that's about things dying, things things making their way out, things fading. Um, this, this, this woman's health clearly on the decline, the insurance coverage on the decline, the business of newspapers on the decline, and uh, 
What's the solution? Why that yearly story on the subway line color to Hell's Kitchen, uh, which is just, you know, eye-rollingly dumb until you open up your local newspaper and find that version of that story. Exactly. uh, Which we all experience, even if, you know, even if you're only reading your local newspaper online, it's still that same fluff stuff. And it is the compromise that goes in with the modern day media and having lived it and, and worked it, I could tell you about it all day. The fact of the matter is that the expose on uh, Union Alloyed uh, construction here um, didn't do anything for them in terms of selling papers. And uh, we get our fifth S word because it <laughs> netted them, Matt, uh, Richard with a side of who gives an S. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, Pete, enough talking from you let's go back to matt me taking us back to matt in the story reiterating that attorney client privilege uh lets them talk about anything and everything and that's then kind of the nugget of this of this dual scene here where they're questioning healy boom he is there to really find justice with a capital j uh and to see how how far this healy thread can be tugged to get more information irony of ironies you know like church. Absolutely. It's basically the same. Yes, but, you know, the, the big question that Matt has and why he's following up this case is he wants to know why a global investment firm is picking up the tab for a murder suspect. And though this is self-defense and there's been some various things that make this case on its merits, um, you know, Uh, something they might be interested in. Foggy wants no part of it and um, having to be talked back into it as they are talking both to and around this client here who wants to know, are they going to break for lunch soon? (laughs) And uh, there's also discussion there. I think, I mean, it's it's clearly in front of Healy, but I think it's more meant to be inside baseball between the two lawyers. Reference to you know, uh, do you wave? Do you wave the ten eighty eighty? No, we hold them to it. And with that, Healy interrupts. No, uh, I want to wave the ten eighty eighty, or he wants to keep it, whichever one the two don't want to do. But right. specifically in kind of rat a tat fashion, you know, let's do such and such with the ten eighty eighty because I want to get to trial as soon as possible. And it's like this is so oh. we can have a trial at the end of this episode. Which, if you know anything about the legal system good luck getting in there before 18 months particularly in new york city (laughs) well you know what pete i will offer this slight asterisk if there is monkeying going on as we'll see later in the episode with the jury also the implication that you know if things bounce a certain way with the jury then the attorney uh the district attorney's office is kind of prepared to let it bounce, you know. Let that bounce continue, meaning no retrial. Is there the possibility of some sort of bit of things being expedited? Now, I completely agree with you. In reality, I think you know. I mean, reference the the famous legal drama Night Court to tell you how busy some of the New York court, you know, how busy the New York court system can be. But I think it's generally acceptable that they can kind of fast track this in what we've seen so far and in what we will continue to see regarding kind of law and this episode. But if they do their jobs, Matt Murdoch and Nelson, all they need to know is that the, 
check is going to clear from the man who hired them. And then Booyah, it's a pinball machine, you know, the one that had the gun stashed by Healy under it um, in the bowling alley, which I've got to openly ask here is reopen so soon. Clearly, they didn't have the same problem Karen Page did with the carpet. I guess blood cleans up uh, much more easily off of uh, hardwood, maybe with a with a uh, coating of grease there. Uh, but there are a couple guys playing, and our uh, glasses-wearing suited character comes up. Wait your turn, man. And uh, it could have gone bad although we get the sense that this character is not muscle i love the reply he gives him a look and then he puts his quarter up i got next it is another example and i don't mean to to be a broken record on this but the show is doing it so well over and over Uh, it's another example of one of these small details they did not need to bring the actor out that day they did not need to bring these actors with you know the playing on the pinball machine. They didn't need to do all of this to establish um, what was established, which is just that he's creepy, but he's cool, he's calm, he's collected. Um, They didn't need to do it, but they do it because it just adds to the understanding of the character immeasurably, particularly because he is usually in action. He's usually ordering people around or attempting to order people around. So to see him kind of in his natural state here, yes, he's on a mission. Yes. He wants to get the gun, but to just kind of see him essentially alone because he's not really interacting with these guys on the pinball machine in any sort of substantive way. It, it, it just, I mean, this guy's like a lizard just sitting there looking around, looking around, waiting for the fly to come by. So he can, he can do what he does. We get this shot underneath to show that and remind really that the gun is under there and he needs at least a minute with the machine to get it out before he's walking out of the bowling alley, gun on the one side, saying hi to a couple of ladies on his other. It's just adding to the story, telling you about these characters without without going out of your way to do some sort of, you know, but it's my mother kind of kind of moment here. It's 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 an example of the excellence of this series. Back to Foggy and Matt, and they're having a discussion about uh, what we do best, Matt, playing bad cop, worse cop. Foggy is upset with Matt because he's changed his mind about representing this client, and uh, Matt admits he was uh, um, that Foggy was right. Um, which Foggy is, uh, you know, seizes upon that this is the first time that he's ever said that uh, Foggy has been right. Um, But as Matt makes it clear and is the theme of this episode, sometimes you have to do things you're not proud of. And speaking of not being proud of something in particular, they still nonetheless uh, not only decide to help Healy, but get Karen to cash that check that much needed <laughs> that much needed cash uh, infusion into the office. You know, in other series, it might be we need to find water to survive or we have to find a place to live with this. It's, you know, if you're going to live by the strict rules of reality in this series, cash that check, keep the lights on, keep the story moving. Um, the irony though, is that also gives Karen the opportunity to leave the office, which takes us to the next scene. 
It does. She is in a boardroom here, and the subject of the non-disclosure agreement that she has previously signed, an NDA, with her former employer here, Union Allied Construction, um, and that this lawyer type, excuse me, lays it all on the line here, um, explaining that even though she exposed criminal activity, that uh, she had nothing to do with the uh, New York Bulletin article um, and the complicated nature here of Daniel Fisher's murder and her um, representatives now turned employers, everything that's gone on there. And Karen is really in a pinch point in terms of where she is, but there's an out. They're going to graciously offer her a good lump um, sum, a good faith lump sum of six months salary for all her help in the matter and any stress that might have been brought up. Stress, you mean somebody tried to kill me after they <laughs> killed my friend. But they want to help her, of course, Matt, because these, these corporations are so caring. They want to rebuild lives and Hell's Kitchen and count all the money, 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 money. Pete, in, in other Marvel shows that we love, uh, you know, the, the villains are shadowy organizations or, you know, there's influence from alien DNA or there's, you know, leftover Nazis that are that are moving the story ball forward. Here, it's Karen against a congenial, helpful you know, well-spoken, high-powered corporate attorney getting her to sign the rejiggered non-disclosure agreement in relation to her breaking the previous non-disclosure agreement. And it's just as capable as she is as a character and as a presence on screen. It's like this this lawyer who at no time is ever kind of doing the, the the easy story route of like let me tell you do this or you're in trouble he's completely sympathetic to her the way a son of a gun lawyer would be i suspect um it's all smiles it's all there's not a hint of sarcasm it's you know is it slightly an understatement to say all that stress when it was an attempt on her life, but it's, it's putting things in the best light possible. But what is it? It's her versus a corporation and the corporation saying, do this or else, because we have it figured out. You did this thing and it's not worth us figuring out. It's not worth us doing this. It's not worth us doing that. You got this information to the press. Now let's wrap this up and be done with it and don't do it again. Otherwise here's the new signature that we're going to go after you with. Exactly. To the hospital we go, and uh, Ben is asking a female healthcare professional here about um, getting a woman moved to a private room as hard to come by as they are. But we hear that a communal setting is not something that the patient is going to deal well with. There's all sorts of forms and approvals needed, of course, the red tape. Um, but that five extra days could be bought here and perhaps uh, more with an appeal with some forms filled out uh, certainly help this woman um, with the help from the healthcare professional. But Matt, a little further story seeding, you know, beyond the measles uh, idiots with the idiot parents. 
uh, and the anti-vaxxers, uh, you know, I, I didn't think this was a Brooklyn hospital, um, but uh, that her best nurse is out. And of course, we don't need to name Claire to know that that is a connection. That's not a spoiler. That's you just not paying attention. <laughs> um, you know, uh, she's out with who the hell knows what. Uh, but a bribe of a cheese blintz, which the woman, of course, tells Ben she should uh, he should have led with. Um, that would be cheating, of course. So our journalists, we've established, you know, though he he talks to people who run afoul of the law, he plays squarely within it. And that's, Matt, just another reason why I love my former profession. <laughs> Here, too, though, we see a man barely keeping his head above water against, you know, the the giant machinations of red tape and corporation and administration and things like that. Um, interesting that we, we essentially get that same flavor presented in two completely different ways uh, in the previous scene and this one. Uh, the next scene, or at least the, the tail end of uh, the hospital scene, the, the reveal is that it's his wife who uh, clearly is in some sort of... Um, comatose state terminal st- i mean i guess not not quite literally comatose there's reference to her having uh been up for a half hour or hour right. today but you know clearly for in, him yeah clearly in in uh you know a dire situation and a situation that's not going away and the result of this scene is one of just uh sympathy for him we go back to the office and uh they're talking about pulling various criminal code um thought matt it was going to be a case of Chekhov's wi-fi uh when it wasn't working and uh karen is sent once she comes back from the long lunch that she's no longer allowed by the the more stern of the two partners here and matt uh from here on forward she bangs on the router and things are fixed <laughs> well a little inside baseball here for our listeners. Uh, the, the the recording of this podcast was delayed by maybe 10 or 15 minutes because all the settings that were good from last time weren't working this time. And what was the uh, what was the solution? It wasn't a literal bang on the router, but it was just one of those things of, I don't know, everything is in the green. Let's just kick it. Okay, now it's working. And we didn't really change anything, but it went from not working to working. So I'm with you, Karen. Just imagine what we could do with that better router, Matt, from our, <laughs> from our generous listeners. Um, but the idea within this scene is that they're working this case, that they're going over everything, and um, that Karen has found out that this new um, you know, corporate giant is but a shell company of a shell company and everything – goes back to uh, you know these people with huge sums of money that we're not entirely clear where they're coming from, but damn if their checks don't cash in two seconds. Yeah, I love that line. Confederated Global is a shell company of a holding company of a this and a that. And again, it's just kind of like, yeah, we've heard of those in the real world. And it just kind of adds, you know, a certain kind of man of the people populism that is uh, peppering these early episodes. Before we know it, we are before a jury and we're going to put aside the skepticism that we <laughs> talked about before because, yeah, 18 months has not passed. We're, we're led to believe days and we're in front of a jury. I get waving everything, but 
yeah, not so so much. Um, and Foggy is uh, making his opening argument here about his client, uh, Mr. Healy, who we get a first name for. And by the way, Pete, shades in this scene, I suspect, um, although it's serving uh, story story necessities for the episode. Uh, shades in the scene, I think, of the the Ben Affleck movie and the lousy lawyering that those two do, and just kind of hackneyed uh, scenes before the judge. Uh, I think here it was like, hey, if we're going to take these lawyers in front of the judge, this doesn't need to be, you know, Atticus Finch here, but we're going to show two competent lawyers, unlike that movie. I, I have to have to suspect that that was said in the writers' room as they were putting this together. And hopefully they didn't subject themselves like we did a couple of weeks ago, Matt, to the director's cut. You can go back and listen to that episode so that uh, you don't have to make the mistake we did in watching it, which adds an entire subplot where John Favreau's Foggy Nelson bumbles in front of a jury and uh, rap superstar no more Coolio. Uh, but what is cool Yo, in this scene is you have uh, Matt uh, using his powers uh, to uh, to listen, to, to, to note that there's a scared jury member, to, to know that Mr. Glasses has come in with a ticking watch. Yep. Um, and uh, in, in the next scene, we have scared jury lady. She's talking with a character I like to call Riff Raff. And Pete, <laughs> what, uh, what, uh, what, what mistake did scared jury lady make back in the day? I found his explanation to the masked man there, um, you know, Murdoch's daredevil showing up. And uh, it, it felt a little too much overwritten in the idea that uh, she made a mistake when she was 19 and pretty and don't want her kids to know. I mean, would a, would a guy cornered really, A, have all that information and B, say that? You know, I'll fall on the side of willful, willful suspension of disbelief. We have to know what it is. And I I like that it is something that is... Um, How about she made a mistake with a tape? Instead, we have an age and that she was pretty. So now she's not pretty. I mean, it just felt... Uh, that was the most hackneyed thing in this episode. Pete, I just bought it because... Here she is. I don't know. What age would you peg her at? She's in her early 40s. Okay. So, I mean, he, you know, here she is, early 40s. And in that bit of dialogue, determining she's a mom, maybe a wife. She's settled down. She's living the normal life. But back when she was 19, you know, I mean, the implication is clear. We don't need to get into it. Um, but just this idea of they have dug up on this basically anonymous woman who happens to have been called for jury duty. They've dug up something from 20 or 25 years ago where she's in, you know, a, a compromising position or two or three. Um, to me, it just speaks to the size of this nefarious, uh, you know, group going on that they're willing to f dig out, dig out such dirt on someone. So I, I, I dug it as a story point. What was better in this scene, and that's the hallmark of our Fantastic Geek podcast, is we're going to call it how we see it and how it is, is when the masked man threatens him to get rid of the tape. Um, that the real information comes, that that isn't how this works, 
that he walks by a building, there's a light on, he knows he's got a job, that there are many people like this, other lights, other buildings, uh, that he, this assailant, this uh, blackmailer, is somebody else's job, but that Matt demands that she get excused from the jury for personal reasons, okay? And the blackmailer explains that... Uh, um, you know, you'd be better off killing me. I'm going to have to leave. Well, Murdoch tells him, you have to leave my city tonight. There's a punch, and then he disappears. And I uh, love that line there, leave my city tonight. Uh, I think the first time that it's been stated to us that, uh, you know, he's kind of seeing himself as the protector of the city. It's kind of been there an implication, but it's kind of this... Um, you know, cape flapping in the wind moment, just no cape and no wind. Definitely back in court. Juror number eight is indeed excused for extenuating personal circumstances. She is replaced with the first alternate. <clears throat> and it's that point that they move into the closing arguments. And there again is the heartbeat effect. And um, Matt takes a minute uh, Healy is wondering what the hell he's doing. Um, and we eye the faces in the jury there. And the judge reminds Murdoch that uh, she is waiting. But he admits to being distracted, pro, uh, pro preoccupied even with questions of morality, that there's a sharp line of justice, there's a blur. And then there's pornography. You know it when you see it. It's a really compelling closing argument. It's not, you know, it's not Atticus Finch, but I don't think we should expect that out of a, a lawyer in his mid-20s. But it really is compelling. Um, clearly, it's underneath the umbrella of, you know, there's a greater justice and Daredevil's going to be on the case. But as a closing argument in a courtroom, um, I think it, it, it really is effective to say to the jury, this is a bad guy who did a bad thing. But the facts are he did it for personal, you know, to, to, to protect himself. And there are no facts to, to state otherwise. Therefore, that's what you have to focus on, despite the fact that there's a smell of, of, of stink to it all. The duality of the character is the life as a lawyer and then the, you know, extracurricular activities as a vigilante. But that a lawyer makes his bread and butter in the courtroom and that we see them in our third episode now plying their trade, not just with the legalese in an office, but as actual officers of a court is important that they duly handle this case in equal measure further establishes Foggy as a character to be embraced and appreciated and not just because he's in the hizzy. Uh, as the kids said in 2003, or one of the kids who became a pretty decent director did, um, <laughs> but that, you know, the whole idea that a man is dead, the reminder of the facts, that we're not making light of it, but there are questions. If these tether us to humanity, a man is dead, a man is dead, Matt, but John Healy, though he admits to taking this life, that's not in dispute, Okay. Um, and then what's in his heart is irrelevant. That good and evil has no place in a court of law, only these cold, hard facts. Um, and they reference that uh, Mr. Prohaska's, uh, you know, 
reputation and the frightened young woman and all the other facts of the case that he's trying to create. And he talks overtly about this reasonable doubt that their client must be acquitted. Um, and these are the facts that justice here, he might face justice. And of course we know later in the episode, he's going to face justice outside these walls, but here it's in their hands. And irony of ironies, you know, ignoring good and evil, we cut to uh, Leland in an SUV. Uh, Leland, of course, the the Bob Gunton character. Uh, he's in the SUV with Mr. Glasses. And uh, a quick scene, one setting up some future story goings on, uh, both this episode and I suspect uh, in the future. Uh, Leland wants to speak with, you know, the guy at the top, uh, but he can't. MRF. Uh, Mr. F. Uh, and Mr. Glasses says he's busy with art, art as in paintings. Art who? And uh, what's <laughs> art that? Art who, the joke was. <laughs> I, I loved, uh, you know, the, the kind of panicked comedic take that, uh, you know, um, Bob Gunton brought to this scene. And, and he can do that. He did it in Shawshank Redemption at times with... Uh, you know, Andy Dufresne, but you know, he's all concerned that their world, uh, is coming around that he can't get at Prohaska's, uh, you know, financials just yet to, uh, to do what he needs to do. And that, you know, this shadowy, you know, boss of the city and maybe even more is, is worrying self with art, with filling a penthouse. You gotta be kidding me. He's decorating. They've lost juror number eight. And, you know, while she's called a puzzle piece by, uh, you know, Mr. Glasses here, he, he puts it, you know, like the writer would you ever try to put a puzzle together without a piece? It's, it's worthless. It's hopeless that they need to get rid of Healy, but glasses very calmly reminds him Rance, Fisher, Barnum, McClintock. We're leaving a trail of bodies and trails lead somewhere. They've got to be more careful. This is the longer game that it's going to be dealt with by our lawyers, which, you know, um, our other character here, uh, Leland, calls, you know, shysters, but that we know in the confines of the law, they are upstanding and they're going to deal with it before Prohaska's holdings can be moved on and take the glare and the light off of this case. And what is the the bodiless, trailless way to deal with this? Well, we cut to Mrs. Fisher, uh, you know, Daniel Fisher having been killed uh, at the start of the series. She's moving out. Karen has tracked her down. And uh, Karen approaches them, or, or approaches Mrs. Fisher, I think, to kind of be be a sympathetic ear. And, you know, the two of us, let's fight the system. But as, as is revealed in the scene, Mrs. Fisher has gotten the exact same uh, payout, payoff, um, in order to just... just keep her mouth shut to take the money and to move on. And yet another scene of how can the good, the ordinary, the, 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 the simple people on the street uh, possibly fight against these, you know, shadowy figures and shadowy corporations and whatnot. It's an effective other woman scene. Um, you know, you, you might've lost fact of, uh, or track of the fact that, you know, Daniel uh, Fisher had a family, 
Um, and not a whole lot more was made of that, but, you know, here to put a face on that loss. And she explains that, you know, she's taken this because of her two children, uh, that she's already accepted this and that she's warned or she warns Karen to let it go that, you know, Danny said it didn't feel right. And that the wife said, well, you have a responsibility to do what is right, not for your family, but do what is right. And now she's going to have to explain to her children later on that it was her advice that essentially got her husband killed. Just a wonderful uh, bit of ambiguity on the moral spectrum thrown in there. Cause how do you argue with that? They've offered Mrs. Fisher Whatever sum this is, I mean, if it's on the order of of Karen's, uh, you know, six month salary up front, um, you know, is it Daniel Fisher's salary for a year because he lost his life? Is it two years? Whatever it is, it's enough for her to say, yes, there are questions. Yes, this is wrong. I'm getting out of the city. I'm taking my kids with me. We're going to start over because nothing's going to bring bring the dead Daniel Fisher back. And how would you argue with that? How do you argue with how easy it is to just fold up and and worry about yourself and, and move on and let let this evil continue you can't argue with it from her point of view and i, I dare say many of us would make the same decision cut to karen at the new york bulletin office and she's come to see ben Urick, who is on the phone with shirley thanking her for pushing things through things have worked out he's smiling there on the insurance front um, we get a quick shot of the article there. Uh, readers vote for color. Um, and this is about the subway. Of course, we find out that he did, uh, bend to what would seem to be his editor's wishes, but, um, she came to speak with him about the union allied construction article that, uh, you know, everything that went on there she thinks that there's more if he's interested proof that good people when they stand up maybe maybe can uh, can can you know when aligned with others maybe can can be the spark of a rebellion if you will be the fulcrum upon which change can happen indeed in court uh the judge comes in and seats everybody we get the ticking we know that things are moving towards a verdict and Matt is uh, scanning the jury. There is an older woman that he settles in on and he announces that they're hung. Um, uh, Madam four person there explains that they were unable to reach a verdict. Foggy, uh, you know, announces that this is an Allen charge that they will be sent back uh, in. And if they're still split that the district attorney could retry, um, but Matt says they won't to, uh, Mr. Healy here and, uh, hell of a speech. Mr. Healy, John Healy tells Murdoch, he made a hell of a speech again, intentional talking with unbeknownst to him, of course, the daredevil. A, a nice button on this whole uh, this whole courtroom bit of business. Um, Healy, having known all along that regardless of how it bounces, there's enough built-in uh, manipulation going on, whether it's with someone on the jury, whether it's the uh, district attorney's office, whatever it is, it's all going to go away. And uh, he walks out of there, you know, 
he walks out of there presumably scot-free and uh the story doesn't linger we then uh cut to healy who fair is fair it's not clear that it's him at first but he's packing up his car because whatever on to the next bit of a uh, bit of badness or on to the next job, whatever it might be, but he's, he's getting a move on. He is. And the masked man gets a move on him. Uh, they get into a pretty brutal beat down and the masked man wants to know who he works for. And Healy tells him he's not afraid of you. There's stabbing. Uh, you know, he finally gets the drop on him with a, a shard of glass after a sharp, uh, pipe from a, a fence is at one point something that uh, our masked man uses his senses to avoid, uh, you know, onto a car hood all over the place. But the masked man wants a name. And uh, up against this, he doesn't take the life of Healy. Um, and he's also told how it works here but the name comes and we get fisk wilson fisk we can finally say it matt shout it from the mountains indeed mr f now named um at the conclusion of of that really nice fight scene special special mention there of the sound design yet again this time for uh things surrounding the pipe and the bucket really kind of hammering home um perhaps unnecessarily but with artistic flourish nonetheless that you know matt hears the clank of the the pipe he hears the bucket rattling against the handle and things like that to really help him navigate through this fight um but more impressive is just as soon as healy has said this out loud said the name wilson fisk out loud which yes pete uh daredevil does not uh you know does not move to kill him but you know shard of glass to the neck as it starts to cut your cut your skin uh certainly on the razor's edge there uh almost literally um i love that fear then immediately descends into healy he can't you know he can't run fisk will kill him if he gets him and then even if he can't and even if he even if he does regardless he's going to kill everyone he ever cared about not my family not my friends everyone i ever cared about so that no one will share fisk's name again and there's just kind of this totality of what that means, everyone you ever cared about is such a broad statement, but it you believe it in, in, in Healy's conviction here that if it takes 30, 40, 50 people to be killed for this, the, the organization will know you never say this name. And, you know, we're still so early on in this series to know the, the full scope and the, the range of power and dominance that Wilson Fisk um, you know, wields, but that um, Healy tells uh, the masked man that you should have killed me, calls him a coward, Matt, before he impales himself through the right eye. And again, that particular eye has been used over and over in these first three episodes. That was the eye that Karen Page scratched uh, Officer Farnham on that he later had the um, the bandage placed on Matt Murdock has suffered a wound to his right eye as well. And th- this man impales himself through the brain on that piece of fence. And he's left to do nothing but watch this before we get to our final scene of the episode. 
It is a truly shocking moment. They they underplay it from the violence department. It's proof of what uh, showrunner Stephen Tonight has said, that they're looking for PG-15 violence, if you will, not the R violence that you might see, say, on The Walking Dead. Um, I think that almost serves it more. We don't need to see an excess of oozing and special effects of a rubber head and a, you know you know, uh, a, a, a rubber eyeball goo. You know, we don't need to see that to just be shocked by the fact that this guy, John Healy, had such conviction that to save everyone that he ever cared about, he's going to jam his head, jam his eye through that piece of metal and take his own life um, in order to save countless people. It's just just stunning. Cut to classical music. We're in an art gallery. There is a woman uh, in a black dress moving eloquently throughout this um, setting. And she and the camera come to rest in front of an opposing man that we can tell from the promotions and the advertising that this is Vincent D'Onofrio's Wilson Fisk character. And the woman comes up and against the white-on-white painting... She asks a children's joke. Hey, Matt, what is it? Uh, it's uh, If you take a piece of white paper, what is the picture of? It's uh, the old famous rabbit in a snowstorm. And, he said uh, the thing. She said the thing. <laughs> that's the name of the episode. Um, the moral being, though, it's what does the art do for you? Right. Um, what is that connection between the viewer and the piece and everything else be darned? Um and I just love that, you know, finally we get this close up of Fisk and he looks dangerous. He looks tired. He looks monstrous. And it's just a fantastic note with which to end the episode. She wants to know if he's just looking or if he's interested. And we cut to his right arm with a uh, a big cufflink there, certainly distinctive and, and rich. And he says, interested. Um, and she points out that, you know, whether it's about the, the aspirations or the skill with art, all that matters, Matt, is how it makes you feel. To which, of course, he answers, it makes me feel alone. More from him to come. Objection, you're already badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat into Hell's Kitchen in this episode? Matt, first up, John Healy. John Healy, indeed, an inspired bit of casting, a very capable actor, somebody whose physical presence suits this character so well. Um, You know, he's able to come off as congenial and nice in the beginning and vicious and a smart aleck and a stone cold killer all of that is shown here in the actor and it really really oh and the character as well and um just a a a really nice one episode story arc for uh for john healy definitely i really appreciate it be one thing if you know there was almost like a special forces vibe to the way in which he he moved around here and, and we get the flashback that you know, he prefers things old school with a revolver. It doesn't jam with, uh, you know, Turk Barrett, who, you know, I'm sure we're going to see more of 
in fact, I know, but we won't go into that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we had name checked this Mr. Prohaska in the pilot and in what was a pretty self-contained story in episode two to spin back now to the larger mythology here and these other characters floating out and around that we get him that Healy dispatches him. And then we get the whole idea that, you know, this man has been in courts that he's not just, uh, you know, a multiple offender, somebody with a, a rap sheet. He's somebody that's come to understand the law. And he knows that through working with, you know, uh, our suit wearing um, glasses, bespectacled gentleman played by uh, Toby Leonard Moore. And indeed, he's uh, he certainly is next on my list. Um, just wonderful performance out of him in this episode. Uh, in uh, the character we're calling Mr. Glasses. Uh, I know we hit on that earlier, but just a, a wonderful presence in terms of being the intermediary, being kind of the... Um, you know the, the 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 greased skids that helps move things along. Um, same could be said about uh, about seeing um, Leland in this episode. Uh, I mean Bob Bob Gunton, beloved for playing characters that are not, um, and, and certainly uh, welcome bit of badness from the two of them. Definitely, uh, we have the character Matt you uh, coined as Riff Raff. The uh, you know just another. Uh, a uh, guy on the street there, albeit uh, with the blackmail and uh, holding juror number eight's past over her head. But within all of these characters, we know they all come back to the one big one. And this was important in that we established him in this episode. And I love, frankly, that we've held off until the very end of the third episode. Here we are roughly a quarter through the series. Uh, and we've held off that long to the reveal of Kingpin, um, or at least Wilson Fisk. Uh, if <laughs> I, I suspect just as with the name Daredevil, we're probably not going to get the name Kingpin um, much, if at all, in this, uh, in this season. I'm not going to tell you. Uh, fair enough. Um, but it really... Um, it's nice that they took this long. I'll go back to a metaphor that I've used in previous episodes. It's like the shark in Jaws. If if he was up front saying, I own this city and I run this city, then you just run out of emotion um, when you get to the one quarter mark, the, the one half mark and so forth. The fact that he's been much vaunted as the one pulling all these strings or pulling the strings of the string pullers. Uh, now, finally, he's revealed in, in a scene of... of sympathy and quiet and you know that the the opposite of both of those is is a result of his actions it's just a wonderful way to use this character it is and uh, the weight and and that's not a crack matt you know on zanofrio here but the weight that he brings to this character we've heard him talk in the you know, two of the first three episodes, one off screen, the other, I'm sure he wasn't in the car uh, just to deliver that line of dialogue. But, you know, that this man has been busy with other things, art, art who, um, <laughs> you know, art Carney. Uh, but, 
you know, we're, we're going to find all this out and it's another thing to bring this rabbit in a snowstorm down its rabbit hole. Your Honor, may I approach the bench? May I approach the bench? It's time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off-the-record theories. You be the judge. Pete, first up for me, one that uh, one that uh, will be a bit of a Netflix joke, but but I mean somewhat seriously. Are we going to see Ben get so fed up with life in the newspaper business that he leaves to go write for Slugline? Um, no, and nor will he take to Twitter or be called something that would probably be spoken in this series. But God, I hope it's not. But joking aside, uh, I mean, one theory is, and I don't think it's much of a stretch, but just this, you know, that the, the he will be battling with this tension of, hey, let's keep with the stories that are easy to tell, that are one-day stories, two-day stories, digging into this, t- digging into this mysterious something, and there's a guy in a mask, you know, this is just a poor man's Iron Man, who cares, stick to, stick to the easy stories. Um, I look forward to more of that. Matt, the first scene we have um, in the New York Bulletin in this episode, did you catch yourself a look at the wall in Ben Urich's office? Oh, of course okay. I did. I'm always I'm always keeping an eye out for set design, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there was reference there, an article presumably written by, uh, by Ben Urich, but uh, – an article there on uh, the Battle of New York and uh, and the effects of it, so on and so forth. So, just more reinforcement as to the the size and scope of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Well, Matt, you know, far be it for me to point out that you wear glasses, but there was a little bit more that us blessed with uh, 2015 vision and the ability to pause it uh, and go back repeatedly as I did, saw. And you would also note, and you can go back and watch, that there was an article headlined Harlem Terror, which is a very clear reference to the Hulk movie in the the last time that uh, Uh, Bruce Banner went to New York. He kind of broke Harlem. There was also, though, Matt, for the eagle-eyed among us, there was a headline uh, titled Caught Cheating. And I have to wonder aloud, was this A, 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 a scandalous Stark item in the New York Bulletin? B, <laughs> has Thor been caught cheating? Because uh, things with um, Jane Foster... And Natalie Portman might not be uh, going so well heading into Avengers: Age of Ultron. Oh wow! Well, I guess I guess we'll uh, we'll have to see once Age of Ultron comes out now in less than a month. I can't believe can't believe that's the case. But uh, all good theories there, Pete. Definitely good stuff. Glad that you're glad that you're holding the prop department. Uh, to to the highest of standards i have one more i have to uh wonder out loud the the gun shipment in the beginning um is this more than just running guns that the gun didn't work uh kind of the reverse checkoffs gun if you will 
and then connect that to the larger, uh, you know, citywide conspiracy that leads to Fisk. Why are people, we, we get the threats and we get that, you know, everybody you ever know is going to die if you speak his name. But how exactly is he accomplishing all of that? Is it because of the, we know there are human trafficking uh, operations. There are now gun operations. We've seen the drug operation run by Madame Giao. You know, a lot of fingers, a lot of pies. Absolutely. We've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. Matt, our listeners help us out tremendously, and one of the ways in particular they help us is when they go to iTunes and they rate the podcast and perhaps even leave us a little bit of feedback, which we truly take to heart and we use to uh, better ourselves and the podcast. We've been meeting out some of the earlier left reviews. Uh, during our three-episode preview phase leading up to uh, the show dropping all at once on uh, Friday, April 10th. Um, our next review comes to us uh, courtesy of Fan of S.H.I.E.L.D., another longtime listener of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, podcast by Fantastic Geek as well as the... Well, s- Seriously, because I have a tweet to share from the same ah, person, totally unscripted. So, hey, it's, it's Fan of Shield's there Day. There you go. The headline is, A New Era of TV Podcasting. Fan of Shield doesn't exactly fluff you with the ratings, though. I have to point out, this is the second four out of five uh, rating that we've gotten from Agent, uh, I'm sorry, from Fan of Shield. One also on our Agent Carter um, podcast by fantastic geek but i appreciate that it takes a lot to to earn this so you know please don't hammer us because you know you don't like us and and we stink and you want to hurt us you know be honest certainly you know but keep those good ones coming in as well the review reads (laughs) they've podcasted shield they're wrapping up agent carter now while working on the second half of agents of shield season two which of course uh late Tuesday nights, early Wednesday mornings. You're looking for that. They're taking a detour into Hell's Kitchen, New York. The Daredevil podcast, based on the preview, seems to carry the same structure as the first two Marvel podcasts. The gimmicks are slightly different, though. In the beginning of S.H.I.E.L.D., the opening felt like any other podcast, and then Agent Carter had the cheesy 40s music paired with 40s dialect. Now we get some court dialect, in honor of Matt Murdock's day job and the opening sirens brings the more ominous tone of this new series. One way to see if it achieves a fifth star. Wait until we start getting episodes April 10. Till then, keep podcasting Matt and Pete. Ooh, I like there's a little, little goal there. There's a mission statement. There's a, there's a plan of attack. So, uh, Pete, let me share a tweet 
from Fan of Shield, who uh, s- said to us as we were recording, just finished Daredevil's uh, Daredevil on Netflix. Great new form of storytelling. Now to watch in line with the Fantastic Geek Daredevil podcast. I love that that somebody who has already finished the series is going back. We certainly designed this podcast to be, um, you know, spoiler free, fresh eyes chronologically, but also with the idea that these discussions of Ooh, is this guy going to return? What effect will that have? That once you have seen things, you can say, hey, they were onto something, or no, that was a misdirect. So, certainly appreciated there from uh, Fan of Shield. Also, want to mention Pete. We had a tweet from uh, our pal, Crescent Moon Cottage. That's Crescent Moon 621 on Twitter, uh, who said uh, it's, it's her birthday weekend. So, happy birthday to her. Um, uh, she's going to watch Daredevil this week, uh, but won't binge. So, hasn't started it yet. And that's perfectly fine too. These podcasts will be up. You know, we're getting them out as per our schedule, which we'll mention again in a little bit. But however you want to watch Daredevil, however you want to listen to this podcast, we love having all of you who can hear this join the conversation, join the uh, join the podcast. Oh, how cute that somebody waited till the second day to finish Daredevil. <laughs> Wow, true true words spoken by the marathon spoiler Pete there with uh, Depends and Gatorade that got him through through all of April 10th there. Pete, the story of your mammoth watching was, of course, uh, documented by you on Twitter to your legion of Twitter fans. How can people join that that crew of just, just adoring fans? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 5,592 followers. Can't be wrong. Holy mackerel. Uh, while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast in a variety of ways. We are Fantastic Geek, Fantastic with a PH, and uh, under that name on the dot .com, the Twitter, and the Gmail. And Pete, one more way. Yes, get yourself over to the book of face, facebook.com forward slash Fantastic Geek, one word, with the PH. Uh, do you like what you hear? Well, hit the little like button, make it official. Uh, promise we won't spam you with anything and uh, you'll get links to new episodes dropping and polls and all sorts of other info that you can use and again be further part of the conversation. Pete, just a quick reminder to all our listeners that uh, the next time we will podcast will be the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast Tuesday night, probably getting to your feeds uh, Wednesday morning. Uh, Then after that, the Daredevil podcast returns uh, Friday morning, and uh, we'll be doing uh, Friday and Monday releases for uh, episode 104 and 105, respectively. Uh, Hope people are hearing us, too, on our pop culture podcast. That's an amalgam of uh, all the podcasts that we do, whether it's Agent Card Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, going to a Marvel movie, Daredevil. Uh, sometimes it's also other goodies like, uh, oh, our thoughts on whether it's Star Wars news, uh, going to New York Comic Con, some other comic conventions, and the like. So definitely a catch-all if you want uh, 110% of the Fantastic Geek experience. If not, well, the Daredevil podcast will return on Friday with episode 104. And uh, with that, Pete, I'm going to get ready to throw around a couple balls. So uh, I will give you the final word. It makes me feel alone. I'm back. Back in New York.